So where are we going today? We're going to move into a new section of Isaiah. We're going to talk about this greater deliverance that covers chapters 49 through 55. We ended a section last week on the great deliverance God brought about uh, when he ended their captivity and brought them out of Babylon. And he used Cyrus to accomplish this. And while Cyrus was just used for the liberation of Israel, today and throughout this section, we will see the servant that will be sent to bring atonement of sin, and therefore, therefore he is the leader of the greatest deliverance. So right now we see that we're going to get a picture of the people have been brought back from captivity, but their relationship with God is unchanged. And this was expressed last week at the last verse of, 40, of chapter 48. Verse 22 said, There is no rest for the wicked. And so today we get to look at the second of four servant songs listed in Isaiah. The first one that we went over was 42, 1 through 9. And the first one, it does kind of compare with the second one in that each identifies a spiritual need and it cries out for help. And in both cases, our servant is described. Now, when Al went over the first song with us, you know, we can miss this, but the narrative was biographical. It was biographical in nature. But today, we're going to get a narrative that is autobiographical. We know this because he starts out calling for all of us to listen and lets us know in verse 2 that God made his mouth like a sharp sword. Both servant songs will, will talk about the servant releasing prisoners. We saw this in 42.7 and we'll see it today in 49.9 and then traveling to that new land. We see that in 42.16, and today is 49.9 through 12. And today we're going to see this servant is a covenant figure who has a covenant ministry. And we know Old Testament prophets, they had a message to speak to the world, but none of them actually said for the entire world to listen to me in such a personal way like it says in verse 1. In fact, looking up, there was an Old Testament prophet, I mean an Old Testament scholar in the 19th century named Franz Delich, and he said in describing first one, verse 1, they are to hear what he says, not merely in the words that follow. So in other words, God has this right to demand our hearing. It's an absolute statement. This is like what he said in Mark 9, 7. This is my beloved son, listen to him. We will hear him also say that he is Israel in verse 3. And in verse 8, he is the Lord's covenant. And in verse 6, he is the Lord's salvation. He is not to be the prophet or the preacher of things. And that's because 
He is those things. This distinguishes him from the nation and the remnant. And in verse 3, God says, I will display my splendor in my servant. Now this servant is a prophetic covenant figure, but he is more, much more than any prophet claimed to be. The second song shows us that the servant, who the first song says is sent to the world, shows us that he is also sent to Israel and sent to them first. You will see the song is a word from God to the world about his servant. The first song God is saying, your plight is known and my servant will deal with it. The second song is the servant's testimony on how this worldwide task that was given to him, he's ready. He's already in place and he's ready to care for Israel. He's going to share his testimony in verses 1 through 6 and he will share it with the world and then hear how he was prepared for the task and called Israel. We're also going to hear how this work has made him despondent and what was his antidote. So today we will look at some of the work of the servant will perform and we're going to look at this in three sections in these 13 verses. So one through six, one through six will be the servant named and his work stated. So one through six is the servant named and his work stated. Seven through 12 will be the task confirmed to Israel and the word. The task conformed to Israel and the world. 13, 13 is the proper response to this announcement. The proper response to this announcement and its praise. So let's go over chapter 49. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he has named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes they, them, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, 
the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, <coughs> In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in the darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on the bare height shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he has pity on them and will lead them. By springs of water will guide them. And I will make my all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and they will have compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray. Jesus, just may you be praised always. We think of when this was said by Isaiah and how it couldn't be fully understood. And we thank you for this time that we live in now, that we can see the work done by God in this first advent. And we have a clearer picture of the reason you were called in that first advent. You were not coming to complete everything. You were coming to bring atonement. And we thank you for the picture we see of your second mighty advent. And we're so thankful that we get to be a part of that. We just never want to take this for granted. The great plan that God had and how he brought you upon this earth to do his work. Not only to bring the remnant of Israel back, but to be a way to bring us Gentiles. So we will travel along that road and, and go up and visit and stay with you forever. Amen. So verses 1 through 6. The servant named and his work stated. Verse 1 says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He has named my name. And like I said earlier, we can't miss how important these first three words are. The use of me here is a big statement. Nowhere other than Isaiah does a prophet say, listen to me. And Isaiah, it is meant that God is saying it here. So whereas listen is common, but the, knee, the me needs to draw our attention. So who is this servant that he's demanding this attention? We see in 41.1, God is telling idolaters to listen in silence as they go to the judge for their case. Who is right, the idolaters or God? The thing we get a picture of is that judge he's taking him to is also God. And here he says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, which means the world. Let, let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. 
He, the servant, is calling them as God would. And he's saying, God called him from the womb, and therefore we get this picture that he was called and he could hear the calling before he was born. That's one of those moments that just make you pause and realize who this is. Who else could hear a voice before he was even born? Psalm 22, talking about this, 22.9, says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. And this person is also called the Messiah, the ruler of Israel. In Micah 5.2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephraim, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So God had kept this secret, kept his name secret, until the right moment to announce, this is Israel, my servant. These three verses give us distinct truths, verses 1 through 3, about God calling and using his servant. So the servant says the four following statements in these three verses, and I want you to notice how each part of the first part of each statement we get from these three verses shows a calling to servanthood, and the back half of each statement identifies the period of concealment, and only this God decides when to make this revelation of his servant. So let's look at them. Number one, God called me from the womb, and from my mother's womb God mentioned my name. Number two is, God made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shade of God's hand he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow, and in God's quiver he hid me. God says, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my beauty. Verse 2, this phrase, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. We, we can't go past this verse. I know a lot of you are already thinking about where we see this in Revelation. And, but I don't want to go past this and not recognize all the verses our God has said about Jesus in relation to the sword in his mouth. So let's look at him. I have five passages that just came to me right away. 11, Isaiah 11:14 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the, for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Hosea 6:5. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them with the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-word sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians 6.16 Talking about the armor of God, it says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then in Revelation 1.16, 
In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. If, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and this face was shining like the sun shining in full strength. So we get the idea that it's coming for battle, but it's not. This part is not talking about the task of war making, but instead it's talking about the warfare of the word. Like we saw in the armor of God, the sword is the word, and it's a precise weapon for up-close battle. And that's what we're seeing here. Will war come? Yes. That's the last section we're going to go over. That's the second advent. And then we see those in chapters 56 through 66. And why, the, why these terms? Well, a sharp sword is much more effective than like a butter knife would be. And then a polished arrow that's been rubbed and smoothed out is a lot more effective than one that hasn't, that the wind could change its direction or its, its flight pattern. And we know that the sword is used in close contact while the arrow is used to hit distance targets. And we see that, you know, it's said in Ephesians, it gives us this example in 2.17, Ephesians 2.17. And he came and preached to you who were far off and preached peace to you who were near. And that's the example right there we have of the sword and also the arrow. He came to preach and bring his word in this first advent. The term hid me in his quiver denotes a personal preparation and care. God kept his servant in reserve until his chosen target was in sight. It also shows us an intimacy between God and his servant. And I look for this, I, I, I get the idea that quiver wasn't taken you know, haphazardly, that it was sincere. And I kept thinking of Psalm 127, and I couldn't see anyone that else talked about this. Because it just, to me, is in Psalm 127, it talks about the blessing of children and that they're like arrows in your quiver. And I couldn't think that God was mentioning that, hey, this is my son, look, he's in my quiver. But that's just me. Verse 3, Israel was a name given to Jacob, and he had it before the nation was called Israel. Jacob was given this name at Bethel and also given the responsibility of the covenant made to Abraham, and that's so much as he was the benefactor of the will. There was nothing he could do to negotiate. Um, this was given to him. We know it wasn't given to his brother Esau. It was given to him. And Jacob had the responsibility on his shoulders, and we saw how effective man is, or, or not. They weren't capable of living up to what it meant to be the nation of Israel. And we saw that last week, right, when it was announced that besides being taken, they would be released from captivity in Babylon. And it was nothing they could do. God would decide it. In 48.1 from last week, we remember God said they were called by the name Israel. But at the end of that first verse, he says, but he said they weren't called that in truth or right. So they forfeited the right to the name. So at this point, God either needs to acquiesce 
to their failure and, and forget about all the plans he made that were listed in the Bible. Or he needs to find a true and worthy Israel. So we know he did, and the true and worthy Israel is the servant. And in Israel, God's glory will be shown. I will be glorified in this passage can also be said as display my splendor or display my beauty. And that phrase occurs 13 times in the Old Testament, but nine of them, nine of them are in Isaiah. And on all the other uses, except for this one, God is saying what he will do for his people. But this one is what will be done for him. And on other occasions, it's used as a plural phrase, but here it is singular because it focuses on the servant. God is using this to say a unique thing about a unique person, his servant. Verses 4 through 6. 4 says, But I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant here is despondent because he has spared no effort, no effort, and nothing has been achieved. He has spent his strength for nothing and in vanity, or you could define that as uselessness. The key observation here is the servant does not day in this condition. Here comes a small but mighty word. We see in verse 4, it's the word yet. Or we could say, but indeed. Yet is used here as a conjunction to bring us God's truth and not ours. God's truth, not ours. God decides what is due someone and he properly provides reward for that labor. So the servant is saying he could be sinking in failure and wallowing in the lack of success, but instead he is saying, it is not up to me. I am to follow the requirements of God, and he, and only he, will decide my reward. So we see a picture here given to us of this servant displaying a little bit of human nature, tested, but showing us he is the perfecter of faith and can say, my God, realizing that when all seems like it's failing, we still have God, and he is the only relationship that we need in this world. Now verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So we see this task that was assigned a long time ago, and now the task is seemingly defeated the servant, is in reality the very task he was prepared for. He is to bring Jacob back to God in spiritual restoration, not a physical return, but a holy return 
to their maker. The servant is renewed here because he has made God his strength. God is his strength in that God is so present in him that the divine strength of God becomes his. As a people, we want this divine strength. And maybe so much without the time and dedication that this servant has to make God so present in us. The theme here in verses 4 and 5 is that as you walk in this life, despondency will hit. We can feel like we're hitting our heads against a wall dealing with some people as we bring them the truth and we show them um, the error of their ways and they still rather not deal with it. So we can try in our own strength and become depressed. But with God and relying on Him, we need to trust that only He can work. We need to be like this servant and recall God's promises, His purpose and life according to God's commands. We need to maintain His dignity in our lives and either discover or rediscover Him as our source of power and ensure, ensure that He becomes our strength. So verse 4 says, to sum it up, I have spent my strength for nothing. And 5 reminds us, God needs to be our strength. That's where we need to go. Verse 6 says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 6 shows us that God is talking to an individual and not a group. He is talking here to his servant. If the servant is also to bring that, that preserved or that remnant of Israel that we've been discussing now for, for 48 chapters prior. Interesting, interestingly enough, the same verb used for preserved is the same that we see as cared for, like in Deuteronomy 32.10. And this is showing us God's care for his prophets, and especially here for his servant. So we see this preserved community are brought back to God through the work of the servant. So this is the task of the servant has despaired about, but God is giving him reassurance that he will succeed and a wider work will be added to his task. And that is to bring us, the Gentiles, into the salvation of God. Okay, the second section, 7 through 12. The task confirmed to Israel and the world. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Verse 7 is interesting in the contrast. We are reminded that the servant will be our 
special kinsman redeemer. So near and special. And as a kinsman redeemer, he is willing to bring us redemption. He is the guardian and guarantees every need. But, but, he is in the first advent not just despised, but it gives us a picture here of deeply despised. And the nations hold him in deep disgust. The picture is the servant of God and brought in for the most important mission ever. And the people he is trying to rescue treat him as one who is just at their disposal. We will visit the treatment he gets. This will become more clear to us in the other servant songs. Verse 8 and just a portion of 9. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to a portion of the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those in darkness, appear. Verse 8 shows us that the servant found his refreshment and confidence in the Lord. We see in answers to prayer that he received an assurance of God's help. We see in 8 that he will bring blessings of security, liberation, and transformation. The servant knows that God is the answer to all of his needs. Day of salvation means a day that will come and it will be marked by salvation that is both accomplished and available. Until this day of salvation comes, God will keep him and continue to make him all he needs to be. He will be given as a covenant to the people. That's, that's a powerful phrase. Prophets had preached on the covenant and pointed to God as the maker of the covenant, but the servant is coming and will make this covenant a reality because it came through him. And the servant spells out freedom to the captives, and by appearing in the light, they are to enjoy this newfound freedom. 9 through 12, let's look at 9 through 10 first. They shall feed along the ways, and on barren heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water guide them. Now in the Exodus, between the time of the Egyptian bondage and their newfound home in one, once was once Canaan, there was a wilderness God's people were in. And they crossed it successfully only because of his care. So surely we will see the care provided when the nation and the peoples make their way to God. They will find provision, which means they will feed along the way, and the places that were once bare will now be lush and provide food for them. Protection. They will get protection. They will be protected from the environment. 
like weather, sun, wind, and then providence. This journey will be under divine leadership. 11 and 12 say, And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and these from the land of Syene. Everything here on this way back is managed by God. Mountains that may have seemed insurmountable can now be approached easily. And what gives us that confidence? He says, they are my mountains. And this path blazed through them is his highways. His highways are going to lead us to what will be a great homecoming. And these highways will prevent us from going astray along the way. That means men will follow their own directions and not listen to the directions given to them from their wives, which can tend to lead them astray. Because said no man never. <laughs> the homecoming will be made by all that, that we are called, and there will be no distance considered, considered too far. We say people in this passage being called from all directions to arrive to be with God. Thirteen, the proper response to this announcement is praise. Thirteen says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So we see here God has confirmed the servant's task. It's done. And now all are summoned to sing. And singing in the Bible is associated with great joy because of the benefits we have freely received. We have earned none of them. We've freely received them, therefore the joy in our singing. And the songs we will sing will list everything God has done for us. So not only will we sing but with us, as we saw earlier, all of creation will sing and join in with us. So this picture is of all of creation looking back to something that has happened. And as a worldwide church gathered together and singing our praise to God, what a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Jesus, may we never take this for granted, our time with you, our time on earth, everything that you've given us to do. May we take, may we take away from this message that we are not to stay in despondency. We are to grow in our love of you and of your word and make you so present in our life that your strength can be our strength. Help us to remember to stay on task and, and just help us to remember that one day, one glorious day, we will all be with you singing of a gift you've given us that we could never earn. We thank you for your servant. We thank you that he is Jesus. 
and that he is deeply loved by you and he deeply loves you and us. We thank you so much for this. Amen. Now going into communion and seeing how verse 13 ended, I couldn't help but think that it's got to be tied in to that marriage supper of the Lamb. So it got me thinking about Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. It said, after this, so something has taken place. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude of heaven. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So we get a picture of a great group singing praises to God. So what a great time that will be when we're all together doing that. So we're going to go back and share communion, this weekly reminder of this, where we will take the bread, which is the symbol of his body broken for us, and this cup showing us that his blood was shed for us to cover all of our sins. Let's pray. Jesus, may we always look forward in our lives to a time when we will have this marriage supper with you, this great feast, this time when we will have the best foods, the best drink. It will just be incredible and a time of praise and fellowship and a love we have never yet felt yet. We will know at that time. We thank you for no matter how we failed, you stayed true to God and showed us of that picture. We thank you so much for your love. Amen.